Thanks for joining us on this week's episode where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 30th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. All right. You know what? It's not the 60s or the 30s, so that's quite an accomplishment for this season. (laughs) We've made it back. It's been a minute since we did the 50s. And from what I recall, it's mostly about biblical epics. But we don't have a single biblical epic this year. Maybe we've gotten over the hump. What a shift. We're changing from the 50s to the 60s. It's coming to the Mm -hmm. end of the decade. So what is going on in the world in 1957? Well, over here in the U.S., President Eisenhower starts his second term. There's some civil rights stuff going on as well. We get a Civil Rights Act of 1957. We -hmm. all know about 64. I think we've mentioned a previous one in a previous episode. There were multiple Civil Rights Acts. Yep. And then this year, we also get the Little Rock Nine, who are the first students who integrate a white Southern school. Eisenhower has to send federal troops down to uphold the court-ordered integration. Mm Mm-hmm. Also this year, the space race is happening. Pretty exciting stuff. Soviet Union launched Sputnik 1 and Sputnik 2, which was the first mission that carried an animal into space. Very sad, actually. Poor Laika. Poor Laika. She did it. They were accomplishing things in the space race. And in the United States, our first satellite launch effort failed spectacularly when our rocket exploded on the launch pad. So thankfully, this is not what the space race is about. No. Not at all. The space race is over when we say it's over. You can trip over a couple of hurdles and still win the race. Correct. (laughs) Which is clearly getting a man on the moon. Right. Obviously. And we have always said that from the very beginning. Yes. Okay. Also, in sort of science news, we have some inventions. The first electric watch is invented this year. And Gordon Gould invents the laser. The laser. There's apparently the laser. There's apparently a little bit of controversy. A couple of other people invented a very similar thing close to the same time. But Gordon Gould definitely also invented the term laser. Which is really the most important thing about lasers, if you think about it. Yes. <laughs> also this year, we're back with Building news. Hell yes. The Mackinac Bridge in Michigan opens the longest suspension bridge between anchorages. So pretty cool. That's what's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. What's happening in film. We've got five nominees this year. A classic Oscar situation. (laughs) Yes. The traditional five nominees. So what are they? Up first is 12 Angry Men, a courtroom drama about a jury deliberating in a murder trial. It stars Henry Fonda and honestly like 11 other guys. There's 11 of them. They're <laughs> a cast of 12 dudes, really. Yeah. This one's directed by Sidney Lumet, written by Reginald Rose. It was nominated for three and it won zero. Womp womp. Next we have The Bridge on the River Kwai a war film about British POWs building a bridge in Thailand during World War II. It stars William Holden, Alec Guinness, and Jack Hawkins. It was directed by David Lean and written by Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson. Nominated for eight, it won seven. 
Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Alec Guinness. Best Screenplay, based on material from another medium. Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, and Best Original Score. Next, we have Peyton Place, a melodrama about the residents of a small town in Maine. It stars Lana Turner, Hope Lang, and Lee Phillips. It was directed by Mark Robson, written by John Michael Hayes. It was nominated for nine, and it won zero. True yikes. Next, we have Sayonara, a drama about GIs during the Korean War who face discrimination when trying to marry Japanese women. It stars Marlon Brando, Patricia Owens, Miyoshi Yumeki, and Red Buttons. It was directed by Joshua Logan and written by Paul Osborne. Nominated for 10, it won four. Best Supporting Actor, Red Buttons. Best Supporting Actress, Miyoshi Yumeki. Best Art Direction and Best Sound Recording. And then finally, we have Witness for the Prosecution, an adaptation of an Agatha Christie play. This one stars Tyrone Power, Marlena Dietrich, Charles Lawton, and Elsa Lanchester. It's directed by Billy Wilder, written by Larry Marcus, Billy Wilder, and Harry Kernitz. It's nominated for six, and it won zero. Real uneven spread on the winners this year. <laughs> Tough times for many of these movies. So what are our highest grossing films of the year? So our highest grossing films are number one, Bridge on the River Kwai. Number two, Peyton Place. Number three, Sayonara. And here we diverge from our nominees. Mm. Number four, Search for Paradise. And then number five, Old Yeller. Sad one. That's what I've heard. (laughs) So for anything particularly notable this year, we have a tiny bit of just Oscars interest. This was the first time since they switched to five nominees for Best Picture that the list of nominees for Best Picture and the list of nominees for Best Director were the same. And that only happened four more times before they switched back to a longer list of Best Picture nominations. So a rare event. Very interesting. I was surprised to hear that it happened so few times. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So what won? We did say. If you we were did. listening. It was not one of the three movies that won zero. So. No, it was in fact The Bridge on the River Kwai. And how did people feel about that at the time? It seems like pretty good. It was nominated for a lot. It clearly won a lot. It was critically very well received. Mm-hmm. Who could be mad? Yeah. It was the number one film at the box office? It was. The public agreed. Seven out of eight is one of the best winning records I think we've ever seen for a thing that was nominated for that many. I'm impressed. Very good. And the historical consensus now, I think Bridge on the River Kwai is still highly regarded, but perhaps Mm -hmm. not as highly regarded as 12 Angry Men. Yes. I don't I randomly came across this as I was looking at the the letterbox, you know, not to say it is a more official record than anything else, but for some reason, 12 Angry Men is the number 3 ranked movie on Letterboxd. People love number it. Number 3. That's, That's really wild. high. <laughs> Bridge on the River Kwai is 221. Yes, people do love it. Bridge on the River Kwai, as we will say momentarily, is on the AFI top 100 list. Yes, it is. I mean, I guess we should probably say it now because we haven't, spoiler, we haven't added any additional films this year. How unusual for us. So yeah, as of 2007, the last time the AFI Top 100 list was updated, they ranked Bridge on the River Kwai as number 36 and 12 Angry Men as 87. So 
that group of critics still thinks Bridge on the River Kwai is better. But probably between those two. Yeah, I think those are the two best-remembered films of this year. Yes. So, as we said, we didn't add anything else. When we looked at the list of critic, you know, top ten lists of the year, I think the top five films were the five nominees. There was not a lot of controversy this year about what the nomination should be. And we thought, let's take it easy on ourselves and just watch the five for once in our lives. (laughs) A lot of doubles this season. So we said, let's play it cool. Also, you know, we didn't see anything that jumped out to us that was like, oh, this was a genre picture they missed. Or, oh, everyone knows this one. I think probably Mm -hmm. the closest is Old Yeller, which I will not be watching. Well, yeah. And we did say to each other that An Affair to Remember Mm -hmm. came out this year. Which is a, a remembered film, but... Yeah, it was an affair to remember. People remember it. People remember it. Exactly. It's right there in the title. <laughs> but we did not watch it because didn't feel like it, honestly. Yeah. We watched the five. If we really missed something, tell us. You know, as we always ask at the end, comments, questions, concerns. Okay. So we've said Bridge on the Require, well regarded, but are you mad that it won? Headline. I'm going to say yes. How about you? I'm going to also say yes. Ooh, spicy. All right. How about 12 Angry Men? Would you have been mad if it was nominated? If it it was nominated? (laughs) It was nominated. If it had won, would you have been mad? No. Uh, Agreed. Mm. How about Peyton Place? Yes. (laughs) Same. (laughs) Great. What about Sayonara? I think yes. How about you? I will also go yes for Sayonara. And witness for the prosecution. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say no. Okay, one mixed. Okay. Well, let's begin with the the yes, we would have been Mads. Yes. And probably, I guess, out of respect, leaving Bridge on the River Kwai for last. I think that is our usual way. So let's start with Pain Place. I've thought through how to summarize this movie because it's oh, thank God. a lot. I think the key <laughs> is to focus in on our two female leads, Allison and yeah. Selena, and then we can like loop back around to the other cast of characters. So I'm not going to go in order. I'm just going to tell you like their plot lines, more or less. Yep. Okay. So Allison is our, really our main character. She's a senior in high school as all the kids are in this film. She lives with her widowed mother, Connie, who's kind of uptight. Allison's primary conflict through the early parts of the film is she wants to be a normal girl, but her mom doesn't want her to be a tramp, like that tramp Betty, okay? Turns out, we we find out (laughs) later in the film, this is a big reveal, her mom isn't a widow, and Allison is actually the bastard of a married man that her mom shacked up with in New York City. Shocking. Okay. Meanwhile, Allison has this friend, Selena, who's poor and she lives on the outskirts of town. Selena's mom is Allison's housekeeper. Selena has a stepfather who is an abusive drunk and a much younger brother. She also has an older brother who leaves at the start of the film, but he doesn't come back. He's not really relevant. I'm not sure why we even saw that. Unclear. (laughs) The stepfather ends up raping and impregnating Selena. She goes to the town doctor for help. The doctor won't help her get an abortion, but he does essentially run the stepfather out of town. He shows up and he's like, you need to A, sign this confession and B, never come back. But before he leaves town, Selena comes home. He's like, I I know that you told the doctor. He chases her around the woods. She falls down a hill. She ends up having a miscarriage. 
Unclear. It's unclear if she had a miscarriage or if the doctor does give her an abortion. It's a little vague. It seems like he does because he he's yeah. fals- falsifying the medical it's records. It's true. He's saying it. she had an epidectomy. Although that could also just be to cover that she was pregnant at all. Whatever. Yeah, but, she doesn't have know, the baby. Either way. Point being, she doesn't have the baby. Selena's mom has found out about the rape at this point from the doctor as well. And she's devastated, unsurprisingly. And mm-hmm. she ends up hanging herself in Allison's closet. So this hanging happens right around the time Allison finds out she's a bastard. It's too much for her. She leaves the town and she never wants to see her mother again. She cuts off all ties when she moves to New York City to become a writer. Meanwhile, war breaks out. It's World War II. We're in Pearl Harbor happens. And things are going along. Selena's stepfather ends up coming back on leave from the Navy. He had gotten drafted into the Navy. He attacks Selena again. And Selena murders him. She beats him to death. And she ends up trying to cover it up. But she eventually is caught. She goes on trial. Allison comes back to help Selena in her defense. Selena tells the doctor, like, you can't tell anyone my motive, what happened, why I might have done this. You have to keep it a secret. And the trial's not going well. It seems like she's going to be convicted. And the doctor's like, nah, I'm going to tell everyone. So he gets up on the stand. He reveals what happened. He has the letter. And then he basically gives a speech castigating the town, being like, you know, everyone here says they're a Christian, but really you're all a bunch of busybodies, judgmental busybodies who don't care about anyone. And we should be a town that loves each other instead of always criticizing each other. And basically everyone in town is like, you know what? You're right. And this helps Allison reconnect with her mother. And that's kind of the end of the film. And then, you know, Selena isn't convicted. And at the end, everyone in town is like, good job, Selena. (laughs) We love you. They applaud her. (laughs) Oh, which is pretty great. So that's sort of the main plot points. So we also have the town doctor. He's a character. There's a whole thing with there's a new principal from out of town who comes in. He comes principal over this beloved teacher. And he's sort of helping the kids navigate their post-graduation lives, which is honestly really cool of a principal. And he ends up falling in love with Allison's mom also and opening her up to love again Mm -hmm. then you got norman who's allison's friend he has sort of like a sons and lover style jealous mom (laughs) absolutely and also like maybe in the book he's gay it's a little unclear not in the movie i don't think then of course you've got betty the town tramp and rodney who is the scion of the town mill owner who's supposed to go to harvard but he's in love with betty so he ends up marrying her instead and of course you can't be married and go to college that's a big point of conflict yeah, that in the was movie. less clear to me that happens multiple <laughs> times so he has to get a job and not go to harvard similar to selena's boyfriend who wants to be a lawyer but if he be- tries to become a lawyer they can't get married for eight years because you can't although be he has a big revelation where he's like i want to marry you and go to school yeah. and you're like wow <laughs> do both <laughs> that's crazy and that's like the cast of characters i think and the story what did you think of peyton place I mean, parts of it were unendurable, I thought. It's so long. (laughs) Why is it so long? This movie goes on to become a show, Mm -hmm. like a soap opera show, which feels like what it is meant to be, honestly. It's very soapy. It starts with just like this ridiculous, absurd dialogue in the scene when the brother's leaving and he's like... He took the money that I was saving for my correspondence course. I gotta get out of here. <laughs> That's the brother that disappears for the length of the movie. 
And I just, I started and I was like, oh, we're in for a rough time. Why did he come back I, once the stepfather was gone? I don't know. That would have made sense, right? Yeah. They could have written to him and she could have been like, I'm alone raising our brother. How about you come help me? And he could have done that. That is it's an idea. Okay. I thought there were some parts of it that were kind of interesting. It's having an interesting conversation about sex, especially for the era. And like sex education specifically, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I mean, the principal is like, I'm going to have sex education classes because the kids need to know. And you're like, this is great. Yeah, that's excellent. But for the most part, it's not the type of movie for me. I was not invested in the drama of it all. And at the end, you're like, okay, he's trying to make some kind of point about the gossip in the small town and how these people are hypocrites and all of that. But I don't feel like that's a thread that is strongly weaved through the whole movie. I feel like it's mostly you're supposed to just be gawking at the dramatic lives of these people. And then at the end, they're like, but, you know, don't gossip. It's bad. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, what was the point of it was my main takeaway. Mm -hmm. But what did you think of it? Yeah, there are like little moments that I liked. And there were also little moments I didn't like. But I think it Mm -hmm. it feels uneven because Selena is in this extremely dark story. Yes. And everyone else's mm-hmm. problems are, like, not really problems. Very minimal. <laughs> exactly. I mean, Norman has a difficult mother, and I feel bad for him. Yeah. But, I mean, also, he gets out of yeah. it, and he, once he's not living with her anymore, he's going to be yeah. fine. <laughs> He'll be okay. But, yeah, I mean, Allison is so upset to discover that her dad isn't, well, her dad is her real dad, but that they weren't married. Yeah. She seems still even more upset about that than finding her housekeeper's dead body in her closet which i think is the worst part (laughs) yeah that is worse like that's horrible that's very sad again part of selena's dark sad story yeah i feel like she's supposed to be mad because of her mom's hypocrisy or something right because her mom is always telling her that she can't go out and be a slut basically and she's like but you were a slut right but that's (laughs) why your mom feels that way because she exactly she had negative (laughs) consequences for that and so yeah you know you're just like okay Allison like it's good that you want to go to New York City and become a writer but I don't know that again because Selena's in such a dark dramatic story I'm just like all these other people whatever right everyone else's drama is treated like it is on the same level as hers and you're like no it's not like everyone needs to shut up about their own shit and help Selena (laughs) can we figure out how to help Selena because she is in a rough spot there's a part in this movie when Allison has decided to leave and go to New York and Selena's her best friend and Selena runs to the bus to stop her from going. She's like, like, please, you have to stay. And she's not saying every reason why, but she has just had all these things happen to her where her mother killed herself and her stepdad impregnated her. And like every now she's raising her younger brother and she's a teenager. Allison saying to her, nah, sorry, can't do it. Gotta go to New York and be a writer. You're like, fuck you. Yeah. (laughs) Someone help Selena. Yeah. I was saying to you, I think part of the issue is that writers always make the main characters of their stories right. writers. They love that because they think they're so interesting. And so then you have this main character, Allison, who doesn't have a lot going on, but they give you little interstitials of her giving her thoughts her about the town. Thoughts. So that, it, yeah. And you're like, no, nah, I don't need any no. of this. <laughs> That's part of the issue of the movie. Yeah, it just, it really feels like it should be Selena's story and everything else should be background right. to that. I did think that, yeah, there were just like weird filmmaking choices too. A, we always say the West looks beautiful in films. We should say this was shot in mm-hmm. Maine. Maine looks gorgeous. Although whenever Maine's they're running place. through the woods, I'm like, Lyme disease, Lyme disease, Lyme disease, Lyme disease. It really stresses me out. <laughs> 
I think they're probably okay. The score when Lucas is chasing Selena through the woods after she's told the doctor is weirdly playful at times in a way that I was like, no, <laughs> like this is a choice. That was weird. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I don't know. The other stuff, the other storylines just aren't that interesting. The principal was a really cool guy. Yeah. He seemed great. And they handled that in an interesting way. The movie starts with the principal of their school has left and they everyone die. in the town assumes that this... Oh, sorry. Yeah, he died. <laughs> he left. He's passed it's on. True. But the kids at the school all assume that their favorite teacher is going to be named principal because she's, you know, the longest serving. And they're like, who else could it be? But the town doesn't want her specifically because this one woman is like, she's too old <laughs> to be principal. pretty funny when she's like, I'm 36. And the doctor's like, you're 45. You're 45. The doctor was pretty cool, too. <laughs> he was a chill dude. The doctor's the best character, I think. But anyway, they, they're like, no, we don't want that this woman. We want to bring in this other guy. So you think that's going to be this point of tension through the movie. But he comes in and he handles it perfectly. And he's like, I understand you thought you were going to get this job. I don't want there to be any tension between us. Like, let's talk about our teaching philosophies yeah. <laughs> and how we want to do it. It's like, yeah. great. She's like, yeah, I agree with both of your And points. then at the school I'm dance when he's supposed to lead them in a singing your little Lang Syne, he's like, but Mrs. So-and-so should do it because she has the longest tenure. And everyone's like, yeah, what a good guy. Yeah. yeah, he's a good guy. <laughs> he's helping everyone get internships after they graduate, which is very unusual. Uh-huh. One of my favorite lines is he helps Allison get a job at the newspaper. And the newspaper guy's like, I'll pay you five cents per column. And she's like, oh, you don't need to pay me. I'll do it for experience. And the principal is there. And he's like, Allison, the first thing experience teaches us is to get paid. And you're like, good guy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hell yeah. But I do love, yeah, that she wants to be a writer and she gives him stuff she's written. And he's like, well, I don't know if this is usable, but what if we get you a job at the newspaper? <laughs> You're like, hell yeah. He's great. And I think that the doctor is the best because I loved how he handled all of the situations. And then when she murdered the guy, then I was like, just call the doctor. He will fix this for you. <laughs> if she had killed him and then immediately called the doctor, I think everything would have yeah. been fine. He well, would have, you like, know, sorted the whole thing She's 18, and she's had a real hard time. She's, yeah. she's got shame going on, which, you know, she shouldn't feel shame, but people do, no. and it's it's awful. Well, I also don't know that she knows everything the doctor has done, because he doesn't really want her to know, I think, that he went and, like, forced the guy out of town. Yeah, yeah, she probably doesn't know about the confession either. Yeah, he didn't fill her in right, on everything right. that he did. No, the doctor is real chill. Mm-hmm. Cool dude. Nice to have a small town doctor yeah. like that. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I mean, part of the, the, not that it was a letdown, but like when we were looking at the description of this movie, they tell you it's about this small town with all these things that happen in it. And they list all the things and like a lot of them were not delivered no. on in this movie. No, like, yeah, one, one of the things is the homosexuality, issue. which is why I was like, Norman might, maybe he's gay in the book. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Unclear. And then they say there's going to be incest in it, but no. there wasn't. So where's all the drama? There's just like one horrible thing and then a lot of people with very minor issues. <laughs> um, so yeah, probably not worth multiple hours of your time. No, yeah, I don't understand why you f would feel like this movie needs to be almost three hours long. Like, why are you doing this to us? Question. Okay, let's move on to Sayonara. Tell me about Sayonara. Okay, Sayonara takes place during the Korean War. We have uh, 
couple of guys in the Air Force. One of them is like a flying ace who is a captain or something. I never remember people's military ranks. He's some sort of officer. (laughs) And uh, he gets restationed to Japan by a very important general who happens to be the father of his girlfriend, who's also going to be in Japan. And on this trip, he is also traveling with a member of his company, battalion. I don't know what Air Force units are. <laughs> Jay named Jack Kelly. Knowledge of military stuff is going to really come in handy for a couple of these films. I know, right? It's, it all washes over me. I'm like, this person's an officer. This person is like a, yeah. you know, grunt. That's all I need to know. So anyway, Jack Kelly has petitioned the military because he has fallen in love with a Japanese woman and he wants to marry her. And so there is internal military politics at the time that are trying to keep American military members from marrying all these foreign nationals while they're over in these other countries. And so they will let him marry her, but they make him jump through all of these hoops and he has jumped through the hoops and they're on their way to Japan, these two guys. And so Marlon Brando, our main guy, first tries to talk him out of it, but when he can't talk him out of the wedding, he agrees to be his his witness slash best man. So now we're in Japan. We meet the girlfriend from America of Marlon Brando, and the two of them seem to like each other, but pretty early on, they don't see eye to eye about their mm. futures, I don't think. So there's a little bit of tension going on there. He goes to the wedding with Jack Kelly and gets introduced to these various things going on in Japan. A friend of Marlon Brando takes him to see this all-female theater troupe. He sees one of the women from the theater troupe, and he thinks she's very beautiful, and then he watches the play, and he thinks that she's even more beautiful, and he's immediately in love with her, as happens to men in films. And so he decides that he wants to woo this woman because he's on the outs with his American girlfriend. So he decides to woo her. She's not supposed to date any men because she's part of this troupe, but he hangs out long enough that she eventually agrees to go on a date with him. So she comes over to Jack Kelly's house. They have dinner. Somehow he convinces her to give it a whirl, (laughs) even though she knows that it's not going to end well. And so for a while, the four of them live in kind of domestic bliss in Japan. They just all hang out at Jack Kelly's house and he and his wife are happy and Marlon Brando and his girlfriend are happy and they're hiding it from the military and everything's good. And then people find out (laughs) about it and they are trying to discourage him from seeing her. They make new rules that no officer is allowed to be seen in public with a Japanese woman at all to try to stop it from happening, but he won't give it up. And then things come to a head when Jack Kelly and a bunch of other American GIs who are married to Japanese women are reassigned back to America, and they are not allowed to bring their wives with them because there is not a law allowing them to do so. There's a law in place at the time that prohibits all immigration from Asia. There would need to be a law that specifically allows these guys to bring back their spouses with them. And so Marlon Brando goes to the general to try to be like, you have to help him. This is really fucked up. (laughs) He loves this woman. You're breaking up his home. And the general is like, well, even though he might love her, there are lots of GIs that got lonely and married these women and now don't want to be married to them. So really, we're helping them by bringing them back to America. Can't you see that that's what we're doing? And so Jack and his wife, because of an idea they got from a play that they saw, end up killing themselves so that they don't have to be parted. And it's very sad. And Marlon Brando 
sees them and he's deeply affected by this. And he has had to part from his girlfriend as well because her theater troupe has reassigned her to Tokyo because of this relationship. And they also don't want her to be dating some white guy. So they send her out of town. And Marlon Brando is bummed, (laughs) as you might expect. And then like, seemingly a couple of weeks later, the general comes to see him and is like, I'm sorry about Jack Kelly. And also, this is bad timing, awkward, but they actually are going to pass a law in America that now soldiers can bring their wives back from Asia. I know it's awkward timing. And if it had happened a couple months earlier, your friend probably wouldn't have killed himself. But, you know, our bad things happen. (laughs) So Marlon Brando is like, get the hell out of here. And then he decides, I have to go win my girl back. And so he goes to Tokyo. And he finds her and he is like, I know that you're worried about how things will go for us. And, you know, they have all these concerns and she's like, well, what will our children even be? They won't be Japanese and they won't be American and blah, blah, blah. And he gives her a speech about how they'll they'll be me and they'll be you and we'll love each other. It's going to be great. And she is, you know, convinced. She comes out to join him. The two of them ride off into the sunset together, basically. And hopefully their lives are good. Maybe. Yeah. That's Sayonara. Sayonara. <laughs> What'd you think of it? I mean, the the background political stuff is interesting, right? So you have the internal military stuff, which the issue isn't necessarily the GIs are marrying foreigners. It's that they're marrying women of different races, right? It's an anti-miscegenation thing. It's interesting. I was talking to my mm-hmm. mom about this and I don't think I knew this, but she said it took, it took my grandparents. So my Maternal grandfather was a black GI. My maternal grandmother was a German lady. It took them three years to get married, to get approval from the military to get married. And my opa had a friend who yeah. married a Italian woman, and it also took them three years. And, like, I think if you were a white GI, it would not have taken you three years to marry a European lady. But, obviously, this is the reverse. Right. And like, you know, you had the added issue, right, of this law that was in place from 1924 that barred all immigration from Asia, which is a pretty crazy thing to think about. So that's all interesting. I think it reminded me a little bit of the Sand Pebbles, that one we did with Steve McQueen Mm -hmm. that's set in China. Yeah. In sort of the way that like, there's a secondary character in the Sand Pebbles who's having a much more dramatic time with his bride from, you know, a different country. And you're like, why are we watching that guy's story? Why is this not Red Buttons movie yeah. is kind of my question coming out of it. I think Red Buttons is having a, a much more interesting story and is giving a much more grounded performance. I did not care for Brando's southern accent in this. And I did... Mm-hmm. He's doing, doing some, some real accent work. Archivist. And like, you know, it, his his acting style is mumbly to begin with, but you layer on the Southern accent. And if I didn't have subtitles, yeah. there would have been stretches where I'd be like, I don't know what this guy's saying. How does this Japanese woman understand him? <laughs> I don't know. It's pretty remarkable. So yeah, I kind of just wish this was a Red Buttons movie. I really liked his storyline. I really liked his the woman who played his wife. The part towards the end where she reveals that she's she's been trying to get this eyelid surgery to look American so she could blend in was heartbreaking. Yeah. It was so sad. And mm-hmm. then obviously their suicides are also sad. So yeah, I think there's interesting elements to it. I just I just wish we weren't really following Brando. And like I didn't like their falling in love didn't really work for me. His falling in love with his girl. I was like, I guess they're in love. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the thing is like 
with red buttons, you right. don't have to have that because the buy-in yeah. is they're already in love when the movie starts. <laughs> and so you're like, I'm sure they, they had a lovely falling in love, love story at some point. Exactly. No, <laughs> but you don't get that a... with this story, which was not no. handled particularly. And then you know, I think we have delicately. to mention, because we have to mention, Ricardo Montalban is in this movie playing a Japanese man. And I just don't understand that casting yep. choice. Disappointed. <laughs> the director was like, I just couldn't find anyone Japanese to play the role. He specifically like well i don't correct but also like the choice to get a person who has a thick mexican accent to then try to do a japanese accent on top of their mexican accent was like really that's the choice i don't know this happened to montalban yeah, for all of this i was career. i was not I excited to learn that he had more than one instance of playing an asian man no, my first note from this movie is, oh, joy, Japanese Ricardo Malzbrandt. It's bad. <laughs> I'm not happy about it's it. It's good. I, I just, I fun. You know what? Given that another movie this year had a fine performance by a Japanese actor. That Japanese actor was actually very famous. We'll talk about it when we get to Bridge on the River Kwai. Apparently he was like a silent era matinee idol. He was a sex symbol, which I love. It's great. So I just fundamentally don't believe they couldn't have found a Japanese actor to play that role. I mean, it's obviously bullshit. Anytime anyone ever has been like, well, I couldn't find someone of the appropriate race, so I just picked someone else. You're like, no. That's not true. That's not a good excuse. It's A, not true, and B, get a Chinese actor. Like, you could get closer. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, in the 50s, you could absolutely get away with slotting in some other Asian actor to play this person. I don't understand how the second choice was Ricardo Montalban. James Wong was already working. Grab him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's dumb. That's okay, what bad, did you think about bad this Bad choice. Similar to you. I mean, I thought the political stuff was very interesting. This is stuff I haven't learned a lot about in the past. And yeah, I mean, Red Button Story was very good i was invested in them i liked him a lot i appreciated that marlon brando's character gets to go on a journey i think that's why he's our main character right because if you if it's the red button story it's like well he's a cool guy and he stays a cool guy throughout i mean at the very least i think they could have slanted it so that it was more equal in terms of their storyline right because it would have been nice to get more of the red buttons and buttons a little more Buttons. Yeah, Buttons, Buttons is, is crushing good. it in this role, by the way, and he won the Oscar for it. Buttons is really good. But yeah, I thought there were parts that were interesting and parts that were not that well done. And it was very Sand Pebbles. Did you like Brando's Southern accent? It was a choice. I mean, yeah, that's that's true. It was really a choice. That's another thing that he argued with the director about, apparently. Oh, and I heard he won on the on the accent, which whatever, who cares about that? But... He also only agreed to do it when they agreed to let him have a happy ending with the woman where they get married, which I guess is not the ending of the source material. No, in the book, they just go their separate ways. I think the thing, too, is the book was written before the law was passed that would have allowed GIs to bring their wives So there wives couldn't home. be a happy so, yeah. ending, yeah. They changed the ending in light of new legislation. I mean, tough situation for red buttons. That's my main takeaway. <laughs> He's so cute with his wife. They were sweet together. Oh, I mean, when they're watching the play where the characters commit suicide so they don't have to live apart, I was like, oh, no. No, this is foreshadowing. They all go to so much theater throughout this movie. There are at least like seven or eight theater theater scenes. 
Yeah. I mean, uh, several of the main characters are in, like, the only act characters in this are in the military or in the theater, yeah. <laughs> basically, because they go to a couple of Montalban shows. He does theater. Then they go to a couple of the main girls' shows, Hana Ogi shows. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, that that puppet thing, which was cool yeah, as hell. I love those cool. puppets. I mean, I like the fading of the Hana Ogi show. So you're just, like, seeing different outfits and different moments of her performance. And you're like, this is pretty good. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, a lot goes on in this show. Look at all these numbers. She was gorgeous, by Beautiful the way. Beautiful woman. Hana Ogi. Beautiful woman. That's why Marlon Brando fell in love with her. He saw Red Buttons woman and was like, she's cute, but like white ladies. Am I right? Yeah, she's all right. And then he saw this really yeah. beautiful Japanese woman. And he was like, oh, wait. Wait, <laughs> Japanese women can be beautiful, too? I might have to get into that. <laughs> she also, I loved her outfits. When she walks to and from the theater, she wears these like cool men's fashion outfits. Yeah, her pants are good she was her Her hats hats are good she looks great (laughs) i love her (laughs) i mean i get it marlon brando i fell in love at first sight as well i mean i get the from the brando side of things i'm not so sure from her side of things no i don't really know what is going on with her they don't develop it very well (laughs) Sayonara. sayonara that leads us to the winner but not in our books Take that. Oh, take that. Bridge on the River Kwai. So this movie is taking place during World War II at a Japanese prisoner of war camp in Thailand at the time, Burma. And we start off on a new group of prisoners being brought to the camp. The folks that are still there are kind of a mix of people. We meet a British guy and an American. And the British people arrive and the is he, what's his is he a captain colonel commander i don't know he's just called the an lead officer. officer the highest ranking guy there is alec guinness and he says to the the japanese leader of the camp hey i have the geneva convention with me like yeah it's cool for my men to work whatever you need done because they're trying to build this bridge on the river Kwai. Mm-hmm. But according mm. to the Geneva Convention, officers do not work. So we're happy to help you. Not doing manual, no manual labor. labor. Yes, mm-hmm. obviously they, they work as officers. Mm-hmm. Uh, no manual labor for officers. So like we'll help you direct our men to do the work, but we will not work. And the Japanese head of the camp is like, nah, everyone works here. Uh, so get it together. And they have a little tug of war. He puts he puts Alec Guinness and all the officers in a hot box while he's making everyone else work. But Alec Guinness won't budge. And so eventually he lets Alec Guinness out. And he's like, fine, you win. Officers don't have to work. Just help me get your men to do better. Because they've been sabotaging the development of the bridge the whole time, you know, in defiance for their officers. When all the officers are released, all the men cheer. They're like, yay, you did it. You don't have to work. So not only is Alec Guinness now out and willing to lead the men, he's like, we're going to build the best bridge ever. So he he meets with Saito and he's like, let me get my engineers on this. You guys aren't doing a good job. You Japanese engineers are no good. Let's get some British engineering on the case. And so like, actually, the bridge should be built here and it should be built like this. We're going to build the best bridge ever. So he starts down that path. Meanwhile, William Holden has escaped. He's run off into the woods. They think he drowned. He did not drown. He makes his way to a village. The village really helps him out. They like 
bathe him and feed him and clothe him. They give him a beautiful flower garland. It looks like he's living the life <laughs> yeah, in the he village. Just, he should have just so. stayed, I so think. He just lived there. And they give him a boat to take him downriver. But anyway, he ends up making it back to a hospital in a camp that the, the British have. They find out that he's been impersonating an officer and he's corralled into going back to blow up the bridge. And so he and a, a elite strike force go back into the jungle to blow up this bridge. But basically at the end, Alec Guinness is so, so excited that they've built this wonderful bridge. It's going to be a monument to the British forever. It, you know, it really helped morale and he's knows that people will use it after the war is over and they'll know that the British did it. They built this wonderful bridge. And then the other guys are going to blow up the bridge and they do. Oh, wait, they don't quite blow the bridge. The other guys were planning to blow the bridge. Alec Guinness figures out they're going to blow up the bridge. He tries to stop them. He realizes, wait a minute, I'm actually just helping the Japanese as opposed to my own men. He ends up dying. And as he dies, he falls on the little plunger to blow the bridge. The bridge blows up. The other guys also get shot first. Everyone's dead. Yeah, except for the only guy who lives is the guy who hurt his foot on the strike force. the, The strike force leader. Bridge blows up. Film over. Yep. What did you think of Bridge on the Film River Kwai? Over. <sighs> I'm having trouble wrapping my arms around uh-huh. this movie because, well, for a number of reasons. I think a lot of it boils down to I just didn't believe that people would act mm-hmm. this way. And that is borne out by the fact that literally everyone in real life that this movie is about did the opposite thing of what happens yeah. in this movie. <laughs> So that, that's a, a thing to start with, I guess, is pretty much everyone has a problem with it who was involved because the Japanese engineers were not bad as they are portrayed here. The British prisoners of war did not collaborate with their, their Japanese captors and try to build them the best bridge ever. They actually did sabotage it all along <laughs> the way. This specific Japanese leader of the camp is based on a real person who was not the leader. He was second in command and he was not like this guy he actually apparently was sympathetic to the prisoners who then testified on his behalf at his war crimes trial the guy who the british leader is based on is also didn't do any of the shit and he's like i definitely did not collaborate with the japanese i tried to stop that bridge from being built and so then you're left with this story of like what are we trying to say is where i'm confused by it at the end you are left in a place where he's like what have i done which i guess is just kind of a like wars crazy kind of thing the way that all war movies are where it's like oh no the consequences of the actions of the war are bad and you're like yeah sure but i don't feel like i'm getting a sense of what's actually going on here because in addition to all of those specific people the prisoners were actually treated much worse than we see in the movie tons of people died like eighteen thousand prisoners of war and then like a couple hundred thousand civilians who were also conscripted to build these railroads and so I just am confused about what the point of it all is. It's like a cutesy little story about the futility of the thing where they build it and then his own men blow it up and he almost stops them. And then they do and you're like, okay. But broadly, what are we saying about the war? I don't get it. I think the point is people get caught up in these codes and it's not good. So there is mm-hmm. a part where William Holden is yelling at the head of his strike force about how the head of the strike force is like, I've hurt my foot, leave me behind, go on without me. If I weren't hurt, I'd leave you behind. And William Holden yells at him, you're all concerned about how to die like a gentleman, how to die by the rules, when the only important thing is how to live like a human being. And I think that is the thesis of the film. I did also think that that whole idea Mm -hmm. of like, 
this is what we do in war. We live by the code. We we die with honor was very similar to Gary Sinise's storyline in Forrest Gump. But oh, not as good because you don't have that montage of all the previous Gary Sinise's dying in all the wars, which is one of my favorite parts of life. <laughs> I love all this dying Gary It's Sinise. a great part of Forrest Gump, yeah. So I do, I do think that is the thesis of the film. But I agree with you. I was struggling through the film with sort of what they were telling us and what we were seeing wasn't quite matching up. So yeah, when we come into the movie, William Holden is like, Saito's the worst. He's so cruel. He's completely unreasonable. He's insane. Your men might die from disease, from all these things that you could die of, but they're more likely to die from Saito. And then we see Saito and he just seems kind of incompetent. Yeah, and he's, like, under a lot of pressure from yeah. his bosses. <laughs> he's just trying yeah. to deal with it in whatever possible way But, he like, can. he makes decisions where you're like, this guy doesn't seem crazy. Like, early on when he chooses not to kill any of the officers, you're like, I feel like a cruel guy would at least kill a couple of them. I expected to see a lot more, you know, naked yeah. cruelty <laughs> from, from the uh, leaders of the camp, which didn't happen, even though I feel like that was the implication of what was going on before the movie. And then similarly, like, did a lot of the new British guys die of disease? We don't know. I feel like the movie is missing a perspective, which is one of the British non-officers. I think that is the role that William Holden is supposed to play. But we lose that internal perspective of what the enlisted men are thinking and feeling, and they become non-entities. So, yeah. I don't know how much we're going to cut out, but we were laughing quite hard earlier when I said that, you know, when Alec Guinness gets out of the hot box, which honestly, I think he would have died in much sooner than he did. I That's what I found very strange is that not, he and the officers who all get kept on this in this hot box for days and days, potentially weeks, seemingly not being fed a lot or given a lot of water and they don't die. And you're like, I don't believe it. <laughs> like, these people are dying. I think they'd be dead. But anyway... <laughs> Anyway, yeah. when they get out, all of the officers are like, or sorry, all the enlisted, all the enlisted all the, men are like, non-officers. yay, the officers don't have to work, which to start with, I was like, why is this the part of the Geneva Convention that you were dying on? This is like a weird. Yeah, I was like, this part of the Geneva Convention sounds stupid, if I'm being honest. This. this is a weird, classist <laughs> part of the Geneva if, Convention. If any soldiers can be forced to do manual labor, yeah. then every soldier like, can be forced to do don't manual want to labor. Side with the Japanese captors, but I think they're right on this one. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then he just feels like he never puts the safety of his men ahead of his principles about the officers right. not working. And it's like, I can't get on board with this. The doctor comes to him and is like, you need to agree to do da-da-da-da-da because the commander of the camp is going to shut down the hospital and all of these people are going to die because they need medical attention. And he's like, well, sorry, can't do it. It's the principle the of battle the thing. Wills. And I was like, all right. Yeah. I'm not on but board. But to be fair, I don't think we're supposed to like Alec Guinness, <laughs> but still, it was like a hard in. And yeah. then, once again, we're missing the perspective of the British enlisted man. So they'd be like, I don't, again. They all seem to yeah, just love really their officers. And the movie is so long, I feel like you could fit it in. That was the other thing. This movie's quite long. I like to joke. One of my favorite stupid jokes that I like to say is, if you've got time to David Lean, you've got time to David Clean. And it occurred to me, because I've only seen two David Lean films, this one and Lawrence of Arabia, that honestly, if you have time to sit down and watch a David Lean film and your house is not not tidy or is dirty, you really actually do have time to clean. Yeah. Yeah. They're long movies. Three hours of cleaning, you can get quite a bit done. So 
You've got time to David Lean. <laughs> You've got time to David Clean. And you'll feel better after you clean your house. So true. Yeah, so I think the movie is long enough to handle that additional perspective, and it would have been helpful to see. And I do think that we should have gotten more William Holden. Like, I think there's interesting stuff going on with his character where he is railroaded into this mission that he doesn't want to go on, and he thinks the whole thing is futile, and they keep Stuff keeps happening where he has never used a parachute before. And they're like, well, we're not going to bother training you because your odds of surviving on the first go are 50% anyway. So it's probably fine for you to just go. He's like, what? And then when they go on the mission, it turns out that they don't even need the expertise they claimed they needed from him. And he's like, so like, what they have the to, hell? They brought him because he <laughs> like, knew the route back and they end up having to go a different route. Yeah. And he's like, why am I here? And you're like, why are you? I'm with why you, why William Holton. <laughs> why are you here? And so I just think there's more interesting stuff going on with him because you have his initial perspective from whatever was actually going on at the camp before these British people showed up and changed the entire way the camp operates. And just his thoughts about the futility of the whole exercise, which are, I think, more what the movie's trying to get at. But we spend a lot of time on the war of wills between Saito and Mm -hmm. Alec Guinness and then building this perfect bridge. For some reason. And you're like, I don't care about this. And I also don't believe it. And then they also take the time as part of that strike team to like give us another like a young man whose mini arc is can he actually kill a person? And I'm like, what's the point of this guy? I don't Mm-mm. need this kid and his mini arc. Yeah. Why? Why have we like, done yeah, this? Yeah, he killed a guy. He no. did it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I was very nervous when William Holden is in the hospital and he has a girlfriend. I was like, oh, no, is this going to be a subplot? But then she straight disappeared. And then I was like, what was the point of her? Every time we checked in with William Holden after he escaped until he was on the strike force, I was like, he's having a good time. I was like, live yeah, your life, William Holden. <laughs> like when you, see him with the, when you see him with the villagers who save him, you're like, oh, well, he was having a good time with these villagers and then when you see him at the hospital he's like romancing the girl and having some drinks yeah. and you're like although life, when the Holden. villagers send him <laughs> off on the boat there's a guy in the boat with him and then later he makes it down river and it seems like he's run out of water where'd that guy go i don't know that part is less clear they don't or that guy tell what? you anything about that <laughs> boat ride i also have to say the scenes that happen in the dark i found so hard to follow when William Holden and his friends escape, I could not tell who anyone was or what was happening. And then they tell Alec Guinness at the camp, oh, these people escaped and they all died. And I'm like, are you trying to tell me William Holden died? It was like 40 minutes into a three hour movie. And I was like, I find it hard to believe that William Holden is dead, but I have no idea what I oh, saw. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it's a little tough to see. So I don't know. Like I, people love David Lean and the way he shoots things and his cinematography and you know that's fine i found the bridge explosion at the end i think so the wild thing is they actually built a big bridge and they got a real train and they sent the train over the bridge and they blew it up but i think that meant they could only capture it once and i don't know that they got the best yeah cuts and angles and i don't think it looks so dissimilar from a miniature right. i think they should have just used a miniature I know that was like a selling point. <laughs> wow. But they could have like... This is an attack on the entirety of the bridge on the River Kwai. They could have gotten more angles, you know, like little Stevie Spielberg in yeah. the Fablements when he shoots the train for multiple angles. Yeah, he's got all the angles. Because you got to run it multiple times. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, you know, they blew it up. That's pretty cool, I guess. 
Blowing up a bridge is fun. Why not? Yeah. But, you know, they blow up a bridge in the good, the bad, and the ugly, and they're kind of getting at the same point. And I like that better, I think. Obviously, people have heard, much as I have my own issues with good, the bad, and the ugly, I do think that portion of the movie that is telling a similar story to this is more effective at this story yeah. than this movie is. <laughs> when it comes to war films about the absurdity of the of war, you've got a lot to choose from. So, yeah, you can take... Right. A little one embedded in a silly adventure about trying to find gold or just a different one that's not two hours and 41 minutes long or, you know, and then use that extra time to David clean. (laughs) The other thing I learned about this movie was it's based on a book that was written by a French guy. And the other thing that this guy wrote was Planet of the Apes, which I think is very wild. (laughs) That is pretty wild. And I also learned that the first guy who translated Planet of the Apes into English, he titled it Monkey Planet. (laughs) That's a great story. (laughs) I really like that a lot. That's really good. I will also say the writers of this movie were blacklisted. So there was that drama with, like, they had to nominate the writer of the book who doesn't even speak English the as author the screenwriter. Of Monkey Planet. <laughs> the Oscars. The author of Monkey Planet, you probably know. Monkey Planet? So yeah, there's yes. that going oh, on. Oh, and we should say, so yeah, this is the one that they were able to find a Japanese actor to play a Japanese person, uh, Sesu Hayakawa, yeah. who had been a matinee idol in the silent era. He'd been sort of forced to retire because there became a lot of anti-Asian sentiment. And then he was brought back for this one. And then he would think he retired again. But I thought the performances aren't bad. They're good. It's just, no, I don't know. Something something about the way the story's put together is like, I don't know. Yeah, it's a problem, I think, with this screenplay more than anything else. It doesn't come together for me in a way that makes yeah. sense. I, I Honestly, it might be a problem with the book because I'm sure they just based it on the events of the book. But yeah, I don't know. I didn't get it. it. It's fine. It's well made. It's well acted. It's all of the above. I just didn't think it really was adding something that I needed to the canon yeah. of war films. And like maybe it was in 1957 and we've just gotten so many more. Maybe. But it ain't 1957 anymore, is it? It's true. Okay. Let's talk about Witness for the Prosecution. Our mixed. Indeed. Our mixed. So Witness for the Prosecution is a courtroom drama. We begin with a lawyer, or sorry, a barrister. Not to be confused with a solicitor. <laughs> yeah. I was like, thank God there's an American character in this, so they will be forced to explain yeah. how the British court things get work. Because Listen, guys, we don't know nothing confusing. about the internal workings of the military, <laughs> British court systems. This is a real tough podcast for us. Yeah. So a barrister, who is the person who tries cases mm-hmm. in court in British court system, has just had a heart attack and gotten out of the hospital. And he is still fragile. He's not supposed to take any more Mm -hmm. stressful cases. But unfortunately, the day he gets home from the hospital, a a very important case walks right in the door. Solicitor friend of his brings in a guy and he's like, I'm pretty sure this guy is about to get arrested. (laughs) And here's what happened. And they lay out all of the events that have happened. He tells the story about how he befriended this older woman. The two of them got along well and hung out a lot. He didn't realize that she was extremely wealthy when he first met her. (laughs) But then he is an inventor and he is like, maybe 
I, I do like her and I want to be friends with her, but maybe someday she'll also invest in my egg beater idea. And so they're hanging out and then this woman gets murdered and it's really looking like it probably was him. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence. He was the last one to see her. You know, various things are pointing to the fact that he murdered her, except he he's adamant that he did not murder her. And our barrister believes him after he does this monocle trick <laughs> that he does to interrogate people. And so he's like, all right, well, we're going to take your case, but I'm going to have to hand you off to another barrister friend of mine because I can't be in court right now. And so then he leaves and his wife shows up. The accused murderer's wife shows up and all of a sudden things get a lot murkier because she seems highly suspicious. And she is like, yeah, I'm going to testify that he got home at nine. That's what he wants you to tell you. He wants me to say, right? And like everything she says makes it seem like he's actually quite guilty. And so they're like, oh, well, this just got a whole lot weirder. And because our main guy actually is convinced of his innocence and the other barrister is not convinced of his innocence, he's like, all right, I guess I'm taking the case. And so they take the case and things play out in a courtroom drama Mm -hmm. type way. We're learning new facts. There's some incriminating testimony. Honestly, all of the testimony is pretty incriminating. (laughs) Pretty much all of the facts are making it look like he's guilty. And then um, Marlena Dietrich also is not being very helpful. And so finally, there's a turn in the case when someone calls them up and is like, I have something you're really gonna want to see it'll take down the story yeah. of that wife. well she says on the stand right like he didn't come home at 9 30 he came home at 12 after 10 or whatever she says right 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 <laughs> ten, 10 after 10 i think she says but anyway she incriminates him on the stand and so then they're like someone calls and it's like i have something you want to see they go meet her it's these letters and one of the letters is from the wife to her maybe her lover someone named max saying I have a way to get out of this marriage. My husband is suspected of murder and I'm going to incriminate him on the stand. And it like totally, you know, takes apart her. And we also learned that she's a bigamist. Yeah, she was already married. And yes. so, but we learned that before. We learned that at the beginning. She's like, because they're like, you can't be forced to testify against your husband. And she's like, well, he's not technically my husband because I did have this uh-huh. other marriage uh-huh. when we got married in Germany. <laughs> my bad. So... Anyway, they he gets these letters, he brings them out in court, it takes apart her whole case, it becomes clear she has framed him for whatever reason, and then the husband gets off, not guilty. And then, <laughs> turns Wait, out... Did you have the thing at the end of your film that was like, the proprietors of this? Oh, should we not say? <laughs> I do like that, actually. Yeah, on the DVD, or I guess on any streaming service, once the credits start rolling, there's a little voiceover that says, the management of this theater suggests that for the greater entertainment of your friends who have not yet seen the picture, you will not divulge to anyone the secret of the ending of Witness for the Prosecution. Honestly, I'd be fine not spoiling it. I do want people to appreciate okay. this. We, well, maybe we'll put in like a real spoiler tag for this one, but I think we have to say it because it is important to my conversation yeah. about the film, unfortunately. We will put it in the notes and right now, stop listening. And I honestly, I would advise you to go watch the movie and see the end because it's a real twist. I said I said I would be mad, but it's a fun movie. It's it's very watchable. I mean, Agatha Christie's so yeah. fucking good at twists. <laughs> she rules. But anyway, we will talk about the twist, but watch the movie because it's worthwhile. So 
then what happens is it turns out that the wife knew that her testimony wouldn't be credible. So she's like, what will get my husband off is if I intentionally make myself not seem credible by writing these letters and giving you the letters. And it turns out that she was in disguise as the person who came and gave him the letters. (laughs) And he's like, holy shit. Oh, my God, this is crazy. And then he's like, well, I get it. You love your husband and you knew he was innocent. She's like, no, I knew he was guilty. (laughs) Turns out he was guilty. And then he comes out with this shit eating grin on his face, all happy about having gotten away with murder. And his wife's like, great, we're going to run away together. It's going to be so fun. And it turns out he doesn't even care about her. He's leaving her with this woman that he had that had come out during the trial, who he had been going to look at cruises with. (laughs) So he's like, screw you. I don't care. I'm getting out of here. And then the wife fucking stabs him. (laughs) He needs to die because he was the worst. And now she's going to have to be on trial. And our barrister is like, well, (laughs) think I'm gonna have to defend her now and his nurse who I loved is totally on board and is like yep we're gonna have to hold off (laughs) you're gonna defend her so it was just like twist 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 at the end I thought it was super fun what did you think of it I also thought it was very fun so the our barristers Charles Lawton love him he's great I was thinking about like is it good that we watched The Private Life of Henry VIII first because I I'm assuming that was your first introduction to Charles Lawton also yes I think it was good. You have to always be excited for (laughs) him. I've had a great journey with him. (laughs) To be fair, it'd be like if you were watching his career in real time, right? You would have seen that early on, too. It would have, you know. Yep. Would have informed all of your following watchings of Charles Lawton. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he's great. The... My like first note is like, oh my God, the script is just so snappy. It's so fun and so funny. I mean, Billy Wilder. It's Billy Wilder. It's Agatha Christie. They're coming in hot. We're having a good time. He has the same medical advice as poor Val Kilmer and Tombstone. They're like, no drinking, no cigars, no having sex with women. No <laughs> sex. can't do anything. Oh, and yeah, no the fun. nurse is very fun, too. And then, yeah, you know, the, the case spins out in an interesting way. They see early on that the wife was an actress, which I think is interesting how that comes back later. And yeah. I was going along and I was like, I don't know if I'm loving Tyrone Power's performance in this. But then with the twist at the end, you realize like all of the performances, because also the the woman that they meet who gives the letters, you're like, this is very broad. But all of the like broad, weird yes, performances are people in the movie pretending. And then you're like, actually, this is great. <laughs> yes. I was like, oh, my God, and it's actually, all Actually, now together. I love that Tyrone Power's like, no, I did it. How could you say that? Yes. And the woman they meet, you're like, this is this actor is really making yeah. some choices. Doing like in this heavy scene. coffee, like I tell you, Mister. And you're like, yeah. Oh. And then when you're like, oh, it was an yes, amateur, an amateur German <laughs> actress do doing it. a Cockney accent. You're like, well, it's all coming together. So it's fun. I think like the reason I said no, and we'll get to this with Twelve Angry Men, is you know I don't know that there's like a lot to take away from the story. It's just really fun, really solidly structured, fun performances. I mean, I'll spoil our future conversation. I do think Twelve Angry Men yeah. 
should have won. <laughs> I, I think it's a, it's a better movie, but I, I thought yeah. this was a great movie. It's not, it, there's not like as much of a, it's right. not saying as much as 12 Angry Men, but I think it's really well made. It's perfect for what it is. And I, that last scene of all the twists, I was literally like, oh my God, <laughs> like the twists were really working for me. I'm very impressed that Marlena Dietrich was completely unrecognizable in that scene where she gives the letters. And apparently they were so intent on keeping it a secret from everyone that they think that ruined Marlena Dietrich's shot at winning an Oscar for this movie because they didn't oh, include in that reels. in any of the campaigns oh, that it was that her. Sucks. But yeah, I mean, I just thought it was so well done. Billy Wilder, always love him. Charles Lawton and that nurse were hilarious. I loved everything that they did together. And then I thought it was like a super solid perfectly executed courtroom drama with agatha christie level twists at the end and i was like that was super fun i loved it yeah. great times <laughs> so glad i watched it because i had not seen that and i had seen you think his egg beater could really separate the yolks from the whites it seems very unlikely they did not show us how it was working i don't Maybe believe that it was another lie. <laughs> it just looked like it was an egg beater with like six it seems impossible it. but i was, I was like, like how exactly it works i mean that is a great invention <laughs> It's true. I also loved that the woman who worked for her was so mad about him bringing the egg beater that she was ready to be like, he's a murderer. (laughs) He's obviously a murderer. He tried to get me to use a new egg beater. Although interestingly, as you talk through this and thinking through like what the evidence is in 12 Angry Men, there's a lot of parallels (laughs) between these two court cases. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk about that, too. But there are very similar sort of circumstantial bits of evidence about both of these crimes. But yeah, I just want to give one more shout out to Tyrone Power, who as I'm watching this movie, I'm like, I just I just don't know. It's just like a lot. I'm just not sure. And then when he comes out at the end and he's like, I knew she would help me. I wasn't sure how, but this was pretty good. And you're just like, oh, you. I mean, yeah, that's the thing. I think that's yeah. part of what made me love it. I just thought everything about it was perfect for what it was. The fact that you're watching the scene with the this woman and you're like, what is going on with this performance? And it turns out that it's her. You're like, oh, it totally makes sense. And then Tyrone Power coming out in the scene when he's like, yeah, I'm guilty and I get away with it. You're like, oh, my God, it all makes sense. He was incredible. <laughs> I just thought it was great. Billy Wilder doesn't miss. Marlena Dietrich also was awesome. I loved her testimony when she's letting him have caught her out you know and and she starts yelling damn you damn yeah that moment though when charles lawton catches her and obviously like again we learn that it's purposeful but it was such like a good gotcha moment where he's saying like i have this letter from you and she's like that's not my letter paper my letter paper has blue lettering my initials at the top and he's like like this like this I mean, just every, it was like the platonic ideal of a courtroom drama. <laughs> I loved everything about how it played out. So twisty, so turny. Great performances. And lots of Billy Wilder humor, which is an mm-hmm. added fun element. It's fun. Loved it. Get out there and watch Witness for the Prosecution, everybody. But don't ruin it for your friends. Don't ruin it for your friends. I love anything where they're like, please, audiences. <laughs> behave like civilized people please show up at the beginning of the movie for psycho please don't spoil the ending of witness for the prosecution just watch the story okay (laughs) it'll be better if you just watch the story and let others watch the story as well hell yeah witness for the prosecution shall we talk about 12 angry men hell yeah okay 12 angry men is 
not quite a courtroom drama, but very adjacent. Literally in an adjacent room. <laughs> it's very adjacent. We start off in a murder trial. We don't see any of the testimony. We just hear the judge saying, you all, the jury, have to decide if this defendant is guilty or not guilty. This is a mandatory death sentence case. So if you decide he is guilty, he will die. And then we pan and we see the defendant and it is a child. Literal child. And you're like, oh boy. <laughs> High stakes. Oh boy. So then the rest of the movie pretty much takes place in the jury deliberation room. They let the alternates go. And we are with our 12 jurymen. And they take an initial vote. And everyone says guilty, except one guy. One guy who says not guilty. And they ask him, why are you saying not guilty? And he's like, I just think this is such a, a big deal. Mm-hmm. We should talk about it. And... The rest of the movie is basically them talking about it, talking about the evidence they heard, talking about what they know for sure, what they can't know for sure, the narratives they have in their own minds about what this type of person is like, what this type of person could do, what happens in most of these situations. And I'm not going to go through it step by step, but over the course of the movie, more and more of the jury is convinced to have a reasonable doubt till eventually at the end, they all decide not guilty. And that mm-hmm. might not sound very exciting, but this movie but it's is so thrilling. Exciting. It's thrilling. <laughs> Maddie and I watched this movie together a couple of years ago, maybe at this point. I don't know when it was. I, three, uh, three to five? Six. Six, maybe. Who's to say? We were screaming. There are parts of this movie where we're just like screaming. I mean, the knife. The, Can oh. we talk about the knife? The knife, the knife is not quite Jason Bourne on the bench. But I was having a kind of a similar, like, oh, my God, it's happening. The knife is happening. The knife is happening. Well, the knife is is like the moment from Witness for the Prosecution with the letters, yeah. right? Where it's yeah. like, he lets them talk themselves into, like, well, there could never be another knife like this knife. The guy testified he'd never seen another knife that looked anything like it. And he lets them be, like, so, so sure. Yeah. And then he pulls out of his pocket, like this knife. <laughs> ah, ah, exactly the knife. It's incredible. So, yeah, sorry. General thoughts. What do you think of 12 Angry Men? I mean, it's a great fucking movie. I mean, all of the tension and fun and twists and turns are unexpected and appreciated, but the movie is also just saying a lot of fascinating stuff about the criminal justice system and how our trials work and people's unconscious biases and how they affect these systems, how hard it is (laughs) to get any sort of benefit of the doubt from people, and just the way that they all have to confront things about themselves and like why they decided the way that they did it's fucking great it's fascinating and the i love the way that people get picked off one by one right like it's a a couple of people here a couple of people there depending on new revelations until finally you're left with just a couple of people who still are saying he's guilty and then one of them stands up and gives this rant about how these people are predisposed to commit crime and you can't trust them and just like a racist screed basically and everyone gets up from the table and just walks away and, and turns, turns their back, their back, on back him. to him and he's like what's happening <laughs> what's happening is you're alienating everyone who's on your side right now yeah. because nobody wants to be a part of this and then the one of the I think there are three guys still saying guilty at that point, And the one who doesn't leave the table is basically like, you need to sit down and shut the fuck up. Like, we don't want to hear from you anymore. Yeah. But it's just, it's so well done. All of the actors are fantastic. And 
you get these various perspectives. I heard that Sonia Sotomayor was inspired to practice law because of that immigrant character who talks about the American justice system yeah. and how it inspires him. Although she also said she has to tell juries, don't listen to 12 Angry Men because they do not act the way a jury should act. <laughs> but it is just like you see all the various angles of it. Yeah. It has a lot to say. It's really, really, really well written, really well acted. And it's a little bottle episode, which I love. I love that they're all trapped in this room just talking. I mean, if you've met me, you know I love a talkie movie and there is no more talkie movie than this movie. Yeah. Literally nothing happens. <laughs> no, nope. and you're in one basic ass room the whole time. They do go to the bathroom at one point. We get a, a sort of a second location. Yeah, it's a big bathroom for it such is. a small little size bathroom, jury room. Yeah, I mean everything you said. It's it's interesting how sharply drawn all twelve of our guys are because like we don't yeah. learn their names. Yeah, they just go by their jury they numbers. Just go the by their jury through. numbers. And, you know, you've got these very much these different types who are able to bring their different perspectives to what's happening and their discussion. And, yeah, it's just it's saying a lot. It's working on a lot of levels. But it's also just like truly thrilling. There's the knife reveal. Mm -hmm. And then Henry Fonda is also able to catch some of the other guys and like, for lack of a better word, little traps where he's like, aha, mm -hmm. see? <laughs> That could have happened. Yeah, well, he does. A, it's it's like he's a lawyer, right? Yeah. He builds up these little arguments where they're like, well, this is the only piece of evidence that matters. And then he tears down that evidence. And then oh they're left God. to be like, actually, um, that evidence doesn't matter. This is the only evidence that matters. Yeah. And then he tears that down. So like the, the big pieces of evidence against this kid is there is his downstairs neighbor thinks that he heard the body fall and then saw the kid run down the stairs well, first he heard the kid yell i'm going to kill you this is then hours he before heard the body fall then well i think he says it happened all together and then part of their debate is that they don't think that's how it happened oh i thought he said he heard the argument at eight then the kid went out and then the kid came mm. back and then but maybe you're right maybe the argument was closer he heard an argument. He yeah. definitely did hear an argument right. earlier and the kid left and then came back. Yeah. And so he hears the body hit the floor. There's a whole bit about like he's had a stroke so he can't move quickly. But he says he made it to the door. He sees the kid run down the stairs. And there's a bit where this one guy who they kind of call like the Avenger. He had this one juryman has a bad relationship with his own son. And his story, I forgot his story about his relationship with his son where I was like, yep. woof. One of my notes here is, wow, these men have trauma to work through. <laughs> this the story he tells, yeah. you're like, oh, my God, you are laying it all out there. This juryman early on tells a story. He has a picture of his son, and he's like, when it, my son was young, I saw him lose a fight, and it made me want to throw up. And so I was determined to make sure he turned into a man. And then at 16, he punched me in the face, and he was a big kid by that point. And anyway, I haven't seen that kid in two years. And you're just like, I wonder what? Yeah, and you're like, wow, wow, what are your unconscious biases about this kid who killed his son? What could that be? That, yeah, sorry. but anyway, so he's one of the holdouts, and there's an older man who's also in the jury who's trying to talk through what it's like to be old, and the that belligerent man is like, he was an old man. He was confused. How could he be positive about anything? And then he's like, like exactly. close in on his face being like, oh, shit. <laughs> there are just so many moments where people argue themselves into a corner and then all of a sudden it's like, ah, oh, fuck. 
shouldn't have said that. <sighs> that he's also that the guy who gets angry at Henry Fonda's like, I'll kill you, I'll kill you. And he's like, yeah, you really after they've had a me? debate about how people say that all the yeah. time. And he's like, hey, if he said it in this situation, he's definitely guilty. And then he yells, I'll kill you. And they're like, will you really? I love you. <laughs> like, the broker is such an interesting character because then that belligerent guy is having a side conversation with the broker during one of their breaks. And the broker is also one of the holdouts. So he's like, you know, he was he was baiting me. I'm not usually like this, but he was baiting me. And the broker's just like, yeah, he did it really well. <laughs> just mm-hmm. I, I really like the broker. He's an interesting guy. Because <laughs> well, he's he's like an all logic kind of guy, right? Yeah. And so then the way that they win him over is he's decided the only testimony that matters is this eyewitness testimony from a woman who literally saw the murder happen. She's like, I saw it happen. I've known that kid my whole life. I know it was him. I saw him kill the, the guy. And he's like, well, if that's the case, clearly he's guilty. And so the way that they talk about that is evidence about her needing to wear glasses and she wasn't wearing her glasses at the night and they find this out because he's rubbing his nose from where his glasses hit his nose and then once he's like oh yeah she definitely wouldn't have been wearing her glasses if she was in bed nobody wears their glasses in bed and so he's like all right well you got me not guilty <laughs> i said that was the only evidence that mattered it turns out doesn't make any sense that's someone that's very parallel for witness for the prosecution because the there's the old housekeeper and witness for the prosecution has a needs a hearing aid and she claims she heard Tyron Power's voice. But yeah, who's your favorite juror? Ooh, that's tough. My favorite juror. I really love the foreman. Me too. I like the foreman a lot. Martin Balsam's so great. And he's just trying to keep order, you know? (laughs) It's an unforgiving job. I love when they come in initially and he's tearing up papers and one of the assholes is like, what are those for? And he's like, I thought we might want to vote by secret ballot. He's doing a really good job. (laughs) He is. The foreman's great. They all have their moments. I mean, some of them are just assholes who suck, but like they're all very interesting. But probably Martin Balsam is my favorite. He is good. How about you? I do like the little old man. He's Yeah, I mean, he rules. I love the guy who's the voice of Piglet, just because he sounds like Piglet the whole time. (laughs) Just like, oh. (laughs) Jack Klugman is great. The guy from Baltimore who also grew up in the slum. I love his whole... I love that, too, when they're like, oh, from the slums, they're all criminals. And he's like, hey, I grew up in the slums. I've lived in the slum my whole life. And they're like, oh, "Oh, well, now we... Why'd you take it so personally, you snowflake? Exactly. But then immediately they're like, well, now we know what you think. Like, as soon as another person changes their vote to not guilty, they're like, we know it was the Baltimore guy. And the old guy's like, actually, it was me. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just here to support this guy. I don't think everyone should be against him. I love that his initial turn, which is like, it's so brave of him to stand up. So yeah, he was like, you know, he laid it all out on the line. Let us do the secret ballot, just hoping someone would support him. And I do support him. And you're like, great. (laughs) <laughs> You're the best, old man. The ad guy is They're so all stupid. Oh my god, the ad guy is the dumbest. <laughs> he's so obnoxious. Everything he says is so dumb. And then, of course, he's the easiest to sway from one side to another. I think he he's switches. the only one yeah. who flips back and forth from guilty to not times. guilty. But I love yeah. too the part where so one of the pieces of evidence is the person. I guess the person who claims she saw the murder said that mm-hmm. the kid stabbed down into the father's chest. And then Jack Klugman is explaining, like, it's a switchblade. You don't stab down you because do that. You, yeah. you'd have to change the position of the handle from when you switch the blade up. Like, you stab up. And then the ad guy comes up and they're having another conversation in the background. You just see the ad guy in the foreground, like, playing with the knife, switching the handle and, like, being like, oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, maybe they're right. Oh, that's <laughs> how a switchblade works. 
it's wild to me, this is an aside, that switchblades are still illegal in numerous states. Like, you can just own a gun, but you can't have a switchblade? Yeah, I don't understand what the point of that is. <laughs> That's insane. I mean, I'm sure it's some sort of weird classist nonsense, but it's very strange. <laughs> it's a very strange rule. It's great. It's super good. It's tight. It's... Mm-hmm. Sydney Lumet's directorial debut. That's crazy. The camera's mm-hmm. moving. We're staying dynamic in this small space. I was wondering, too, about connections between this and Do the Right Thing. Because mm. they both take place on the hottest day of the year. And, yeah. you know, we've got a lot of Oh, I, we didn't mention that. And... I love that. Uh, how oh, hot it is in the yeah. room. And, the, like, the, having to open the windows and the fan doesn't work. And then work. it starts to the, There's, like, this great sense of place for something that is just taking place in this little box. Yeah. It's great. I think it's a great movie. I think it has a lot to say. I think there are interesting layers. I think all of the characters are well drawn. They have a good part to play. Wonderful stuff. Hell yes. Courtroom dramas this year. So good. Well, as we said, we don't have anything else this year. We just did the five. Good on us. Yep. So what should have won? I I think we said. 12 Angry Men. 12 Angry Men. They got it wrong. Oops. Whoops. <laughs> Sorry, Bridge on the River Kwai. You weren't for us. Okay. So, should we tippy, tippy, tappy toe down to Jake Gyllenhaal Corner? I'd love to. And see if there are any good roles for him this year. He's not alive, clearly, Mm-mm. but he could be in some of these movies. Why the hell not? I mean, obviously, he could be in 12 Angry Men. <laughs> could be one of 12 men. <laughs> which which juror would you have him be? Which man would he be? If you had to replace a juror. Mm, who's the most Jake? I mean, you want to give him something to do, right? There are some guys that are mostly along for the ride. Yeah, I feel like, okay, he's not the ad broker. No. I don't think he's, or the ad guy, he's not the broker, I don't think either. I don't think he's Mm-mm. the broker type. No. I don't think we put him as the racist guy with a cold. No, I don't think that's for him either. I don't think we make him the Avenger. The Mad Dad. The Mad Dad. He's so good. That guy's really that good. That actor's fantastic. He's really wow. good. Oh my god, what a great performance. He's really very good. I he mean, can't be he the foreign be... watchmaker, because that, like, no. let's not do that. He could be the Baltimore guy. Mm-hmm. He could be the guy that wants to get to the baseball game. <laughs> He could be the old man. He could be the foreman. But again, I did love Martin Balsam I guess he could be Henry Fonda also, juror number eight. Anybody could be Henry Fonda. He's the everyman. Yeah. Maybe he's the guy who wants to go to the ball game. I like that guy who's like, I really just want to get out of here. Yeah. I have eight o'clock tickets to a baseball game. (laughs) He's interesting because I think in the end, everyone does really truly come around and it doesn't seem like he does. He's just like... Well, I love that because he yeah. switches his vote. Once it's like six to six, he's like, all right, fuck it. Like, or like eight to four. Not, well, I think yeah, I don't remember. So when the tides are turning, he's yeah. like, fine, not guilty. I'd like to get out of here. And then they start to yell at him for changing his vote. Because right, <laughs> like, they're like, you don't actually believe it. Yeah, this is important. This is a man's life. Like, <laughs> you got to really make a decision. And he's like, and I he's don't. Like, Whatever. I don't have to. It's a worthwhile perspective to have. Well, because that honestly... That's a big part of juries, right? Like, these are made up of a lot of people who don't necessarily give a shit about the outcome. Right. They've been forced to be here. Yeah. I think the real takeaway, or one of the real takeaways from 12 Angry Men is we shouldn't have the death penalty. Because I think, right, the point is you can't ever know anything for sure. So to do something final 
when you can't know anything for sure is crazy it's a crazy move yeah it's like how could we what if we're wrong (laughs) and we could be wrong yeah and we can never get that kid back you want to murder an 18 year old because you're pretty sure (laughs) like no thank you no couldn't be me all right if we had to put jake in 12 angry men we're going with the guy who wants to go to the baseball game (laughs) but more broadly there are um, other options he could be tyrone power i mean i'd see jake in a production of witness for the prosecution absolutely and how fun would it be to be in a production of witness for the prosecution so fun obviously he could be in bridge on the river Kwai. there's like a million roles i mean he'd probably be the american he'd be william holden He'd be William Holden. William Holden's great, though. I have no problem with William Holden. No, I wouldn't replace him. He could be Red Buttons. He could be Red Buttons, but Red Buttons is so good. No, I See, really this, I get to a place where I'm like, I don't want to take away people's performances. Like, the no. performance Red Buttons won an Oscar for, you got to let him have I it. I might have liked him more than Brando. He could have been Brando. I don't think he I probably really would have helped the Southern movie. accent. You don't have no. to do a Southern accent. No, I said he probably wouldn't have done the Southern good. accent. Not that he couldn't have done the Southern accent. Good. Uh, and then... We're not putting him in Peyton Place. No. All right. I don't know that there are any movies he would have markedly improved. But improved. I would see him in a stage production of both Witness for the Prosecution or 12 Angry or Men. Or 12 Angry Men. Absolutely, I would. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Conclusions. Will you come back to any of these films? Yeah. 12 Angry Men was just as thrilling the second time around, even though I'd already seen mm-hmm. it. Even with the stuff. I, I, I don't think I remembered all of the twists and turns, but even no. with the ones I did remember, I was like, it's about to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah, it's they're good. Happen. And I really want to rewatch Witness for the Prosecution now, knowing the yes. end, to see the performances all the way through. I agree. I think <laughs> if I rewatched Tyrone Powers' performance, I would appreciate it more than having the mental math of like, that was actually really Is he just good. not good? Like, what's going on? <laughs> I see him in old Chicago, and that movie wasn't very good. Maybe I just don't vibe with Tyrone Power. But right. maybe I do vibe with Tyrone maybe Power. Maybe you do vibe with Tyrone Power. Exactly. <laughs> Those two. I don't know that I'd rewatch the other three. And I will say, I definitely vibe with Charles Lawton, because I think he's great. You I've loved him Charles in everything Lawton. we've seen him in. A little <laughs> Lawton performance. <laughs> he is fantastic. I really loved his relationship with the nurse. They were so yeah. funny. And then I loved her coming around at the end. Like when his other guy's like, all right, we got to get you on the boat to leave. And she already knows like, oh, we're not leaving. We're yeah. taking this other case, obviously. It does feel like the beginning of one of Christie's series where we're going to come back to this barrister. I would like him to have been like a main character of what? Like of a, a Christie Perot series. sort of situation, obviously. Exactly. Different job, but. Mm-hmm. It's ready for a sequel. Alas. And I heard that Agatha Christie thought this was like the best adaptation of her work, which it does rule. So. Nice. Hell yeah. (laughs) Well done, everybody. Yeah. Good work. Okay. Have we learned anything? This is the one of the years where the war epic wins. Scope, baby. They said, look at this little courtroom adjacent thing. It's too tiny. It's taking place in one room. What is this? There's no vistas at all. Not a single What's vista. A movie without a vista. I don't know. It's kind of an unconventional war movie since there's no war in the war movie. But mm-hmm. it is still David Lean and it's long. And yes. it has some epic vistas. 
This is before Lawrence of Arabia, though, I think, right? I think that's right. Isn't that like 60 or I something? I think so. So they don't, even, they don't even know what kind of scope David Lean's got cooking up. Mm. They you, they've never seen horizons like they're going to see. They're not, <laughs> they're not ready Arabia. for this. <laughs> yeah, so okay. scope wins. Yep. So our patterns. Do we have angry white guys? There are some in 12 angry men. They're so angry. <laughs> 12 angry white guys. It's All really guys. more like two angry men and 10 various other men. That's a terrible <laughs> name for a movie. <laughs> two angry men and 10 other men. 10 other types of men of varying degrees of anger. Yes. He found us quite calm through the whole thing. That broker guy is very, oh my God. When the when the one guy says to him, like, do you ever sweat? And the broker just goes, no. No. <laughs> He's incredible. <laughs> Hilarious dude. I love that guy. It really is. Okay. What about in other movies? Angry white guys. I mean, not a lot of your, not a lot of Travis Bickles running around in here. No. We should probably, we should maybe rename this to any Travis Bickles. Because, <laughs> like, you know, we're never really getting at dudes who are just angry or just generally awful. That's a different thing. Yeah. We're really getting at any, any. I mean, it's the toxic masculinity character. All right. Well, we'll rethink this segment. I'll think about it. I mean, I kind of am attached to the title now, but <laughs> okay. we can we can workshop it. Angry white guys, a.k.a. any Travis Bickles Travis running Bickles? around? Travis all right, there were no biopics this year. Wow. Wow. There were also no original ideas. Wow. <laughs> there were truly no original ideas this year. One of the movies nominated for Best Original Screenplay is adapted from a short story. <laughs> That's unacceptable. But I guess they were like, we have to have five, and there's not five. <laughs> what are we going to do? Guys. So yes, the Bridge on the River Kwai, Peyton Place, Sayonara are all based on books, Witness for the Prosecution, a play, and 12 Angry Men, a teleplay. I always think that's so interesting that they took a, a television show and adapted it up to a, you know, a feature film. It worked. All right. It is time to rank the best, best pictures. Where does Bridge on the River Kwai go in all of this? Hmm. 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 Mm-hmm, indeed. I'm like, I, don't really know. I, sit, I think below a man for all seasons. Okay. Do you want to go higher? I mean, I probably liked it more, but I didn't really like a man for all seasons, and you liked it more than I did. What about Kramer versus Kramer? I would put it above Kramer versus Kramer. Do you want to put it between the two? I do. Okay. It's fine with me. I don't want to put it above Tom Jones for sure. I mean, it's not nearly as weird as Tom Jones. Tom Jones leaves a lasting image on you. It sure does. Okay, that means Bridge on the River Kwai Kwai. is our new number 23 out of 31 films. I don't think we Mm. said this is our final episode of season two. I guess we'll get into that. Oh, we probably should talk about that. We will. We can at the end. In the outro? Yeah. I'm intrigued to find out when we have finished this entire, you know, venture, mm-hmm. if there's any sort of thing to be gleaned about the years on this list of our best of best pictures. Like, did they get better at choosing them or worse as time went on? Hard to say. Who's to say? Kind of all over the place right now. Mm-hmm. 
Can't wait. Can't this wait to do some statistical actually. analysis. I, I mean, I have not really looked at it, but there are two films from the 60s in our top five at the moment, which I don't know would have been a thing I would have guessed. Why? What do you have against the 60s? <laughs> it's just like, I don't know if it's like a banner decade for filmmaking in my mind. Well, we haven't finished yet. Other decades could nudge in there as we go along. They sure could. They sure could. It's All t- right. It's tough to get into the top five, though. It is. But I know that there are movies out there that I love that will, I'm sure, become in conversation. Wiggle, wiggle their way right in. Wiggle their way right in. And then there might be some surprises that we've never seen, don't know anything about, and love. That's what happened with ordinary people. Famously. Exactly. <laughs> Famously. Famously. They're talking about it the world over. Yeah. Can you believe ordinary people ended up at number two? They can't. Okay. okay. So what are we talking about next time? Next time, we will be wrapping up season two, which Ooh. is very exciting. So we'll be doing our season two stats episode, which will also include our predictions for the 96 Academy Awards or the films of last year, 2023. Wow. It came around so quickly. I feel like we were just recording last year's Oscars. I know. Another year gone. The nominees this year are American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Oppenheimer, Past Lives, Poor Things, The Holdovers, and The Zone of Interest. Ooh. Have you seen any of them already? I've seen... Barbie and Oppenheimer. (laughs) Barbenheimer for the win. I also have seen Barbie and Oppenheimer and The Holdovers, but that is all. So I'm very excited. Some good stuff in here. In the meantime, if you have comments, questions, and concerns, please reach out to us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod, and our website is OscarsWrongPod.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe. New episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. 